Namo tassa vagavato arahato samma sambutasa namo tassa vagavato arahato samma sambutasa namo tassa vagavato arahato samma sambutasa Aparuta de Sangamatasataurage Sodavanta Bamunchan to Satan. So, <laughs> welcome you to Amaravati and this uh, Sunday afternoon reflection seen through delusion. And of course, I could go on for hours with this subject. <laughs> And probably create more delusions. <laughs> because uh, talking tends to create, increase the delusions, thinking, talking. And so, like the Buddha's emphasis was on mindfulness, which is uh, being aware, just uh, opening the mind to the pure conscious awareness in the present where there isn't any delusion and so the, but because we we live in a society and we're, we're highly conditioned to perceive through various conditions uh, that we acquire as we grow up so that uh, those delusions uh, of how we ident- identify with them we, we live with this uh, in the world of thought and uh, love and hate, like and dislike, true and false, with our cultural uh, uh, conditioning, our social identities, the ego, the sense of a separate self, and so it's all a delusion. But that's hard to take for most people because uh, the real world is, tends to be what somebody, an individual thinks it is. And so we find, you know, sometimes we wonder why there's so much confusion and problems in, in our relationships, in the, in the society we live in, the world at large, because uh, we assume that everybody is uh, pretty much uh, thinks the world is the same world. And, <laughs> and yet when you get down to it, each one of us lives in our own separate creation. And so the, the Buddha was a brilliant um, uh, kind of pointing at the way out of delusion. His, his whole emphasis and, and uh, his teaching uh, in the scriptures, the Pali scriptures that we have, are pointers, a way out of delusion to see reality, to know ultimate reality. And from there, then we can deal with the conditions and the illusions, the delusions that we, in our, we create in ourselves and the way the society we live in perceives and operates according to the principles, standards, prejudices, biases, identities and that, that, that every society has. <clears throat> it was very interesting, I was listening to uh, on Radio 4 in the morning, the 6 o'clock uh, this program, Heart and Soul, or something about, they give this reflection on uh, oneness, the universe, and God, this uh, Sunday morning. And, uh, and now there's so much, uh, you know, interest in religion. What is the purpose and function of religion? And of course, the Pope Benedict is uh, visiting England at this time. So there's a lot of... Uh, interesting discussions going on around <laughs> around what the Pope is saying and the scandals that have been uh, that we all hear about through the media in the Roman Catholic Church plus the, the Pope as a, as a visitor of the state who's representative of you know millions of uh, Catholic Christians and then, uh, then there's, um, you know, an awareness, a kind of awakened awareness happening uh, where the more intuitive style of human endeavor is, 
is becoming more acceptable or more acknowledged. And so, you know, like saying, this is just my reflection on, on this subject, is that, you know, we're conditioned to see things from a certain perspective uh, after we're born. Uh, you know, when a baby is newly born, it doesn't have an identity, it doesn't think of itself as a person, as, a, as an English baby, <laughs> or a Thai baby, or anything else. It, it's just, uh, it doesn't think. In the, through words or language. And so it's, uh, but it is conscious and it's a human form, human form that's conscious. So I'm trying to prepare the ground for what actually takes place at birth in terms of this subject, where the delusions begin. Because the baby has, of course, its instinctual intelligence, its survival instincts, its needs, and, and knows how to you know, use this instinctual nature, instinctual intelligence to survive, let the, the mother know what it needs and so forth in ways that babies do that are universal, you know, wherever a baby's born, it, pretty, it very much acts in the same way. <laughs> and then, then as we, uh, after it's born, then it, start, it started, we start conditioning it to identify you are, you're my little baby, my darling, and you're a baby boy or baby girl, and you're a nice English baby, or... <laughs> so these are the, the acquisitions after birth. There's no, like a baby has no nationality, not, not isn't aware of a difference of a boy and a girl, or what society it's in. But it's conscious, but it's the conscious form, so... Its consciousness is is pure. It's not adulterated with conditioning yet. It's uh, it's it's our ability as a as an individual form. It's what we live with is consciousness, and then we are conditioned, uh, and the consciousness then is clouded over with the various conditions that we acquire after birth, after we're born. So the identity with the body. This is me, my body, I look like this. I'm a boy, I'm, you know, American, I'm a Buddhist monk, I am uh, uh, identify with my age, then <laughs> with my position. Uh, and these are all conditions that one acquires through, through one's uh, the early years, and then as one grows up, the identities that one has in terms of position in society and relationship to others. And the cultural attitudes that each culture provides us with. So, since uh, there are many different uh, nationalities here, different cultural backgrounds, <laughs> that uh, it's each one, when we look at our particular cultural conditioning, we, we see, you know, that this identity and what, how we're conditioned through this cultural identity, we tend to interpret our life experience. Right and wrong, this is good, this is bad, this is true, false, this is appropriate behavior, this is wrong behavior. And we have the, the kind of uh, standard role models of what a good child should be, a good boy, good girl, good student, and then we're rewarded and punished accordingly. <clears throat> so when we're bad boys and we, we get punished, when we're good boys, generally speaking, we get rewarded. <laughs> and so, just pointing to this dualistic realm that we're experiencing, the, the, the conditioned realm of the physical body, I mean, it's uh, like we have separate physical bodies. So I'm here and you're there and I have to perceive you through this position here. You know, I can't perceive you from where you're sitting. <laughs> but uh, this is so, so obviously true, but yet sometimes we, we don't really reflect on this, on the reality of this situation. What is like to be an individual a human, separate individual that's conscious. So, can, just using the sense of consciousness as universal rather than as personal. 
like we tend to think of consciousness like our bodies, like it's my consciousness and your consciousness. Well, this applies to the body, my body and your body, because we can actually, you know, through sight, we, we see that you're there and I'm here. But also, changing from this separateness, this sense of separation, duality, to pure consciousness, then that is, is, is oneness. It's, it's, uh, and, that's, and we can only recognize oneness through the intuitive ability of a human individual. So that's our great gift as a, as a human, is, is uh, the, great, uh, the, the, the great gift of our humanity is that we can reflect on Dhamma or the way things are, not through taking positions uh, from cultural attitudes or, or class biases or gender or uh, so, uh, you know, power positions or whether you're rich or poor or whatever nationality you might identify with. When we begin to, to like mindfulness, this word that the Buddha emphasized, the es- essence of the Buddha's teaching, the, the axis of it, the center point, is the ability we have to be mindful, being awake and present here and now, reflective on the, what we're experiencing through consciousness, that we project into consciousness. So the delusion, seen through delusions, is, is what we do. We tend to interpret our life through our sense of self, our ego, our uh, biases, prejudices, perceptions that we've acquired. And the aim of the Buddhist uh, practice his basic teaching, the Four Noble Truths, is, is a skillful means that he used to direct our attention <clears throat> to beyond just the conditioning of the mind uh, to, the, to the recognizing and appreciating pure consciousness. Which, and the only way that we can ever really do that is through mindfulness or awareness by opening to the present moment and uh, and just reflecting on the way things are. So he also, the Buddha's teaching, tends to simplify everything from the complexities of, of the different conditions in this room. You know, how many people are here and how many male, female, how many, you know, are of this age, middle age, young, old, uh, Buddhist or non-Buddhist, then it gets into all kinds of complicated statistics uh, and, uh, and makes, you know, confuses our mind when we try to figure out and, and completely explain all the different conditions here. So instead of working on that level of statistics and numbers and qualities, he pointed to all the, the, the thing that all conditioned phenomena as a characteristic share, is that all conditions are impermanent. So this, this makes life much more simple because we're, we're looking at this characteristic of conditioned phenomena rather than our particular uh, attitudes towards men and women or, or Asian or Europeans or Buddhists or non-Buddhists or whatever. Uh, we also have a way of looking at our own goodness and badness, our virtues, our vices, our good thoughts, our evil thoughts, and the, the shadowy uh, conditions that appear in consciousness, and the beautiful ones, and the confused uh, states that we are all subjected to. Because there's so, such a myriad of qualities and conditions, and they all can take, you know, they can be external, we can see things only what is an object, or we, we complicate ourselves by also thinking about ourselves in various complicated ways. How good or bad or lovable or unlovable and right and wrong one can perceive in your own, the way you, you see yourself through, before you, you project outward, you're, you're looking at yourself from the critical mind. 
and from the cultural attitudes, you know, the biases that we get through what the Thai people think is right behavior or wrong and what the English perceive as right and wrong. Or what's the best or what's the worst. So this is, um, <coughs> this brings us into this sense of a unified consciousness in which then, once we begin to to fully appreciate that, then we have our perspective on the different conditions that each one of us has experienced in the present. So if we just worked on what each one of you is, what feeling you have at this moment, you know, then, uh, you know, so we start from here, and you tell me how you're feeling, then we try, by the end of the, get to the back of the room, everybody's bored, so everybody might, this is boring, or they might get up and leave. <laughs> and what have we gained, except just more confusion in our mind. But if we, but if we begin to recognize the unified consciousness, the oneness, then we can start looking at the, the way we, we tend to cling to the conditioning that we project into consciousness. The habit tendencies, the emotions, the, uh, the fears and desires and loves and hates and, and so forth that you know, are changing and, and dependent on other conditions. So on the condition level we're, we're you know, uh, Condition, we're, we're changing conditions, each one of us, because what you're experiencing in the back of the room right now, if I did what I was threatened you with, <laughs> the condition you're feeling now, you might think, oh, that'd be interesting, but the time we reach you, you'd probably have a different feeling. <laughs> and that's the way uh, conditioned phenomena is. It's, it, you know, it changes very quickly. Also, to put into perspective uh, the human condition in the planet that we live on, the universe we're living in, we're experiencing through this form, the individual form, is that it's it's a sensitive form, and and like birth, when a baby's born, it's it's thrown out from the mother's protective state, the womb, into uh, a, a vast universal. Uh, impingement. So, you know, it's a, it's a separate physical form that is going to pick up all the different conditions affecting it in, in whatever place it's in. And so this is a, and so we're born into a sense realm, a sensitive realm. And this is why when we don't understand this, then we're, we're always feeling so this, this this sense of threat or fear or uh, you know anxiety, worry, because the conditions are changing, and we have very little ability to control and manipulate them to the conditions we want. Uh, you know, we have to more or less learn how to to respond to changing conditions, many of which, uh, through life's experiences, we don't want or don't like. So, and that, that's what sensitivity means. It's, it's, uh, sensitivity has no permanent quality. That's not permanent pleasant sensation or permanent unpleasant sensation. And then through the, through the senses themselves, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, these senses are also subject to conditions. You know, so we, we see something we like, and then we feel attracted to it, we see something we don't like, we want to get rid of it. So this is what we call dualism. Everything has, you know, the best, if there's the best, there's the worst, if there's good, there's bad. Heaven, then there has to be hell, right, then there's wrong. One, you know, also is connected to its opposite. Where in pure consciousness, since it isn't conditioned, it, it's not about, it's not dualistic, but it has the continuity because it's a oneness 
that uh, that in which we we tend to ignore or seldom really recognize or experience. Uh, and of course, I think children sometimes, when we're fairly innocent and not totally um, conditioned yet, when our egos have not been set in stone yet, where they're still changeable, you know, you can experience kind of mystical ex- uh, experiences or unexplainable experiences of oneness or that which uh, sometimes, you know, innocent children can readily experience or tune into energies or things that are no longer socially or religiously recognized. So, you know, children, they call it fantasy or you're just make-believe or pretending. But how do we know? You know, is it, are they? Or are they, you know, they, how do we know anything outside our own conditioning, the way we've been told is this is right, this is wrong, this is delusion, this is, this is the truth. And then we, we tend to interpret our experience always through these perceptions that we're conditioned with. <clears throat> and I remember, you know, when, uh, when I was a little boy, I think I must have been about four years old, I, I was... Uh, Looking, at, I was I was looking from our house, from the front window, across the street into this woodland, which was across the road from where we lived, and I saw a lion in the woodland with red eyes. <laughs> so um, I told my mother, and she said, "Oh, not, there isn't any lion there." <laughs> But I swear, you know, I wasn't making it up, but I saw it. Now what it was, I have no knowledge of. And it doesn't make any sense according to, you know, my social background or, you know, if I'd belonged to some group that believed in these kind of things, they might have, my mother might have said, oh, you've had to, oh, you've unfortunately visited by one of the great, the protectors of the, of the world. <laughs> but she didn't, she said, no. It's a, it's a, fantasy. And so years later, when I was a monk, uh, I went to see my sister, who lived in Southern California, and and we were reminiscing about old times when we were children. And uh, so I, I told her, I don't think I ever told her about this lion, but anyway, I told her about this, this vision I had. And she She goes into kind of state of stunned consciousness, you know, I said, what's wrong? And she said, I saw that lion. (laughs) 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 Well, that's unexplainable, isn't it? That doesn't make sense, it's not right, it is, but how do we know? You know, because we are very, you know, committed to very strict ways of perceiving reality. And, uh, you know, you go into, you know, you hear about anthropologists going to remote tribes in the Amazon jungle or something, (laughs) and they perceive things in a very different way. And of course, you know, we've got the conceit that we're advanced and civilized and they're savages, but that's another perception, isn't it? That's a cultural bias. That, that, you know, being American, we're very convinced we're, we're, you know, we're the kind of advanced state of democracy that the rest of the world should follow. <laughs> so, so that is, I mean, you know, if, that's part of a cultural perception, isn't it? It's not, you're not born with that. And so each culture has its own particular convictions of its own sense of reality and what's right and wrong. And so like the, the problems we have, say, in Afghanistan or the Taliban or the uh, Iranians uh, and these different, you know, that, that the common attitude towards these cultures or these groups are, is that they're wrong. And uh, that we're we know what they should do. <laughs> and so, so then, uh, 
this is, uh, you know, this is, you know, we really believe it that that the the way the Taliban act is is evil, and that we're right. And and in many ways, according to our values, our perceptions, our conditions, it makes sense. But of course, from their position, it's something else. How they perceive the world, from their cultural conditioning, their religious, uh, the attitudes they've developed from their religion. And this is where it's so difficult to, to understand each other very well because we're operating from d- two different bases, two different conditioned attitudes, two cultural, that are co- very culturally different. That's very interesting in being, uh, being born in the United States and uh, where you, you're brought up with this very egalitarian attitude of, you know, of uh, everybody's equal and, you know, the freedom to say what you want and, and all these uh, kind of ideals of uh, democracy and rights and so forth that, that one is, is uh, programmed with. And, of course, I grew up during the Second World War and we, we were very patriotic, you know, at wartime, you know, saluting the stars and stripes and, and uh, singing, you know, uh, what is it, uh, uh, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition songs. <laughs> and of course Hitler was, uh, you know, a perfect villain, you know, he's one of the most perfect villains that we have in history. <laughs> and so, it, you know, well, it's easy to hate Hitler if you're, if you're an American, uh, and, uh, or European, or even German. <laughs> but but this, is, uh, this is because he, he fulfilled the role of a villain, and he was very destructive in his, you know, his uh, attitude towards Jews and others, and and his uh, megalomania desire to conquer the world. <clears throat> so, you know, as long as we're operating from these, these conditioned attitudes, then what, where can we find a modus vivendi? Where can we come to agreements? What, what is it that, say, we could all agree to, say, on a moral level, just to just to say, Stan, uh, I'm just taking a moral precept that we should agree to. And of course, the first precept in the Buddhist tradition, the five precepts, is to refrain from intentionally killing another human. <clears throat> so this is, uh, you know, the, you know, in most in most societies, it's a criminal offense to kill with intention another human being. Except if, you know, then we have our exceptions. It's all right to kill them if they're the Taliban or <laughs> Hitler or Saddam Hussein. <laughs> to kill off the evil ones, you see. So, so then this, uh, this moral principle is, say in the Buddhist perspective, is, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's no exceptions to it. It's not like, it's all right to kill the enemy uh, but don't kill your friends or your family or your countrymen. And now, you know, war has reached this, this abominable level of uh, where we, you know, it, it's uh, we, we're not intention of killing innocent bystanders, but with the modern weapons, it's no longer just warriors fighting on a battlefield, but it's dropping bombs that usually... Uh, kill everyone but the one you're aiming at. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty grim. It's collateral damage, isn't it? It's a kind of euphemism to, to hide the horrible reality behind it, behind those kind of impersonal words. But when you, you talk to people that have actually, or hear reports of people living in areas that are bombed, you know, they don't see themselves as collateral damage or the loss of their mothers or husbands or 
children or wives or whatever as collateral damage. It's personal. It's it's uh, it's uh, you know something that brings us grief. It's tra- it's a trauma that we have to you know that the individuals experience. Where collateral damage is just kind of like just collateral damage, and it kind of makes it hides the the ugliness behind it, and oftentimes justifies the action. So we have these delusions of righteous wars and and uh, views about uh, a just war. Uh, we, we've got to get rid of the evil forces. Uh, we've got to save our own. We've got to protect our own country, our family, from the from the enemy, from the demon, from the villains. So this is this is the the cultural conditioning that that makes us fight and separate hate, where we have prejudices and preferences. We also have these ideals that we're all equal. That's an ideal, uh, you know of of an ideal is at the very peak, the very best, and then the ideal is is uh, is beautiful. But then the the realities of this moment is where does equality lie? You know, are we all equal here? And uh, and then we look at you know because we're aware of the differences, and so where where we're the same, where we're totally equal, is in consciousness in the oneness. And then in the differences are in the forms, different appearances, the the conditioning process, the age of the body, the 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 self references and cultural attitudes. And so by reflecting on the way it is, we're bringing attention to why society, why the world is like this. And then I heard about, I had this interview of this man that was in uh, in Jerusalem recently. And um, of course they're having these talks to Middle Eastern conferences between the Israelis and Palestinians to, to form agreements uh, on being, on learning how to live with each other and who ha- whose land is this and and establish the boundaries and so forth that uh, you know these kind of conferences have been going on for how many years ever since <laughs> the rise of Israel as a separate state. <clears throat> so anyway, this this man was in the Palestinian part of Jerusalem, and uh, which was the, where the old part of Jerusalem, where the Palestinians. Uh, Israeli Arabs who have lived there for like generations, hundreds of uh, years. And he was talking about the, in the marketplace, you know, there's no kind, it's not a tourist area and it, and so they don't have a lot of kitsch uh, souvenirs. They have more or less like markets that sell fruit and things that people need. But he also came across where they were selling t-shirts and, and he saw this t-shirt that was had the, on the front of it had these all these people kind of laughing, you know, great uh, paroxysms of laughter, you know, belly laughter, and then on the back it said, uh, "Peace Accord in the Middle East." <laughs> we can all laugh at that because you know what, the oneness and the like the first precept: do not intentionally kill. There's no agreement on that, and then on the both sides, and then, then uh, there's no, you know, two uh, different cultural attitudes, different conditions, perceptions, values, fears, and seeing seeing each other as the enemy, and then the reflection on the unity of consciousness. That's I don't think they ever thought of that. Uh, and also the ability we have to agree just ba- on basic uh, on the on one moral uh, very good moral direction is not to intentionally kill another human being. So this is just you know my own reflections on you know what is really important to our harmony and peace in the Middle East. The actual 
that which would really allow that to happen is never discussed. It's always arguments about whose, whose land is it and, and uh, you did this and you did that and, and trying to come to you know, some kind of agreement on how to live with each other as separate states with one not dominating the other but it never comes to any practical agreements and putting those agreements into practice. Why? Because of this ignorance, the not being able to see through the illusions they have, then they, how can you change the, the reaction? Maybe we can enforce a peace accord, you know, just through kind of force and using power and forcing them to do it in some way or another. Uh, blackmailing them, threatening them. <laughs> but actually those kind of, you know, when we use tyranny as our means to, to get what we want, then we, you know, it, we, we might suppress the feelings for a while, but the, the basic problem has never been addressed. And so when the, the tyranny kind of loses its power and weaknesses or fails, then the, then the wars erupt and the terrorism, the bombing and the killing and the blaming go, uh, continue as it has been in the past. <clears throat> so, uh, the delusion of life is, 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 is not the conditions themselves but our not knowing anything beyond it. So our reality is, is the way it is, you know, it's it's this. This is my body, and I'm this person. I'm this uh, name. I have. I'm. I have this position. I'm this age of this body, and and then I have my own personal views of myself. You know how I see myself as a person, and then there's the what you think I am, and the the, uh, the perceptions you project onto me, and so you know we because I have lived a, a virtuous life in the monastic, uh, Buddhist monasticism, there's a certain amount of, you know, of um, merit from this, because, uh, you know, I haven't intentionally killed anyone. Not since I became a monk. <laughs> <laughs> I never have. It doesn't mean I haven't felt like it sometimes. <laughs> you live in monasteries, you'll see. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't act on that. <laughs> and, uh, and the monks and nuns, they don't act on it. They probably have the same, uh, same impulses. <clears throat> So in, you know, like in the, in the, the, the way of doing good and, and not doing bad, refrain from doing what is harmful, this is good advice. You know, so in, say, in the moral agreements and in uh, something that's very useful, because we all have, we all have good and bad tendencies. You know, we can love and hate and be jealous and be fair and, and understanding or selfish or malicious or whatever. These, these kind of emotions, attitudes and that arise in our minds. Uh, and so, you know, they, because of the conditioning and the and a basic needs for survival and procreation of the species. You know, the instinctual needs that we share with with animals, are also influencing our consciousness. So in, um, you know, so we, you know, like in the animal realm, it's survival of the fittest, isn't it? Of course, they, they live their lives, they have a certain way of relating and acting, but it's, it's not about not intentionally killing another animal. They can't agree to that. <laughs> uh, it's beyond their ability to agree on the first precept. So you can't judge the animal realm by our sense of moral propriety. Because they are what they are, like a cat can only 
be a cat, you know, it's, it's karma, it's form, it's shape, it's, uh, is, is that of a cat. So it, when it sees a bird, it wants to grab it, kill it. And uh, of course, living here in England, uh, this is frowned upon. I mean, we, we love animals too much <laughs> to justify. So, like in the monastery, we, uh, you know, I don't know how many of the monks and nuns have tried to uh, <clears throat> train the cats not to kill birds. <laughs> but I don't think any have ever succeeded. <laughs> well, the cat does it when we're not around. <laughs> so this is uh, a reflection on the way things are that that the animal realm this is a fear realm there's there's a lot to fear isn't there and just being a separate uh, vulnerable form that we are you know being a human form in this vast universe in a realm where the, where everything's living off each other and when you, you know, you begin to contemplate nature, it's all about, you know, one, one species eating another, killing another, and, and on and on like that. And that's just the natural way of things in this realm of birth and death and sensitivity, survival, and procreation. Now we share those same instincts and tendencies uh, with the animal realm. So we're actually living in a realm that is survival, it's a, a fear, behind it all is fear. And when we identify, when our only identity is with ourself as a human body, the, this body, then there is a lot to fear because it can be harmed, it can be in, uh, considered collateral damage by somebody else if you get killed. It, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's uh, subject to uh, the sexual drive, it's subject to, we also are very sensitive on uh, the level of praise and blame. In that physically we're quite vulnerable, emotionally we're vulnerable. So that um, if somebody insults us or, uh, you know, humiliates us, we, we feel terribly hurt or traumatized or angry by what somebody says, or what we think they say, or just by the way somebody looks at us. Somebody looks hostile and hate, hateful at you, and then, then you, you, you know, what do you do? You, you tend to contract, suddenly fear arises from some look from somebody else. And so this is pointing to this state of sensitivity. It's like this, it's about pleasure, pain, about, you know, success and failure, praise and blame, our human society is, you know, to have power and not be weak, to have, be strong and to, uh, you know, protect ourselves and our families and our property at all costs uh, and to, uh, you know, then blame others or <coughs> blames oneself or whatever in terms of, our, you know, what goes wrong in our lives. So we live in a, you know, society that's about praising and blaming, giving awards and punishing, uh, you know, trying to, to um, protect our society or our families. Like the, in, here in England the past 20 years or so, there's, you know, the incredible amount of regulations promoted by these different governments. It's called the nanny state, where anything that might cause harm is, is they make a law against doing it. So, so you're in a in a society that that tries to regulate, you know, and prevent harm, and and outlawing every possibility of danger, or possible danger, or perceived danger. And in the process, we have a, a very complicated bureaucratic society because there's no end to the dangers of this realm <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, and you know and as much as we try to regulate it and punish the criminals it seems to still go on you know uh, you know we have periods where it gets better and periods where it gets worse uh, 
<clears throat> but in the interest in the Buddhist practice then of mindfulness, the developing this mindfulness is is a great gift of the human human species, is that we can reflect. We can contemplate our own existence. We can, uh, you know, not just operate from this sense of me as a separate personality or my view of life is uh, that I've acquired from the American perspective or my own language or thinking pattern. You know, when I do that, then I then I create more division, more separation, more problems because, you know, it's uh, each one of us has our own different tendencies and attitudes and expectations and fears, dreads. You know, some of the people that tell me about their emotional problems, uh, you know, because uh, sometimes I don't I don't get it because it, what they're talking about doesn't bother me in the least. <laughs> <laughs> but it obviously bothers them, you know. So who's right and who's wrong? <clears throat> but uh, bringing into consciousness, like what I'm trying to do this afternoon, is to point to the way it is. You know, it's not blaming it on anybody. It's not blaming God. It's not blaming um, anything other than recognizing this realm that we're experiencing uh, that is trying to reflect on the way it is and and then also pointing at, our, at the way that we can reflect on it to begin to recognize a natural state of oneness that's here and now but which we don't we've forgotten about or we, we've never really consciously recognized in our lives so then we, you know, we and this this uh, emphasis on mindfulness in the past twenty years, I've noticed in here in England the emphasis on this, you know, where say when I first came to live here in 1977, very few, you know, it was like meditation. People say they they were secret meditators. They didn't dare tell anyone because it was too weird, too strange a thing to be doing. <laughs> Have you told your friends, I'm going off to meditate, they think, what's wrong with, what's wrong with her, you know? <laughs> You're doing something strange and, and maybe frightening because you don't, you don't quite know what she's going to do, what she's up to. And so, <laughs> kind of, uh, and now meditation is quite in the rigueur, you know, it's, fashionable and they talk about it everywhere. Well that's a good thing because it's now kind of in the consciousness of this society here in England. It's, you know, how many people will do it or appreciate it, but it, it's no longer just some weird thing that, that some eccentric person might be interested in doing. Then <clears throat> mindfulness, the word mindfulness is used a lot now in psychotherapy, in psychology. And so this uh, this word is is uh, is the essence, really. The whole teaching of the Buddha is based around this. It's not a doct. That's why it's not a doctrinal position the Buddha is taking. It's not asking you to believe in something uh, that he creates from his own cultural background or from his personal experience of life. So it's not like a personal philosophy or a cultural attitude, but mindfulness is, uh, is a natural state if, that we use, but we may not appreciate or recognize. Now, as we, as, even though we, we would have died, you know, in infancy if we were never mindful, you know, it's, a, it's absolutely a, ne a necessity uh, for survival, mindfulness. But the Buddha raised it up to not just just to instinctual mindfulness out of fear or survival, <clears throat> but in, uh, in, in like a, in a society of encouraging people towards skillful living, towards being responsible for their lives, for their action and speech, uh, leading them onward to being good individuals, good citizens, good people, and refrain from 
following the, uh, the negative impulses, acting on them or speaking on them. So it's like training, you know, develop sense of this sense of self-respect as a person, as a member of society, as a member of your family, in which is in acting and speaking in ways that's worthy of respect. You know, that we, that we feel safe, we feel appreciated, we feel uh, right about ourselves when we, when we don't intentionally kill another human being at least. Or when we don't lie to people or try to dis- intentionally deceive others or take things that don't belong to us or just use our sexual instincts just for selfish pleasures without concern for anyone else or, or uh, you know, taking drugs and drinking kind of, uh, you know, muddling our consciousness to where we don't know right from wrong. We're just caught in in this uh, confused state and uh, in, unable to be mindful of it. So the, the five precepts are, are a guide that, uh, you know, of training oneself to be just a good human being. And to, to not be just blaming your suffering and, and, and unhappiness in your life on always blaming somebody else for it. But it's like taking responsibility. It's like growing up, maturing recognizing that, that you have to live your life and you can't just, if you become the, the victim of life, it's because you, you're blaming. I, I didn't get the opportunities or the chances or that somebody else, that you perceive others have had or somebody else's fault that I suffer. And so the first noble truth is based on the common experience that all human beings can recognize easily is suffering. So notice that the aim of the Buddha's teaching is taking the common condition that all human beings can recognize, whether they're, you know, from the top of the the top echelon of the Queen of uh, Queen Elizabeth to the the lowest miserable wretched human being, uh, and all gradations, permutations in between those two extremes, uh, is uh, you know then we all experience suffering. And so, you know, we, if one is very, you know, has good health and good education and good opportunities, good parents, good everything, they still suffer. <laughs> well, not to mention those that don't. <laughs> so it's not about, you know, the poor should meditate. But, <laughs> but because they're the ones that really suffer, but... Uh, the suffering of the rich also <laughs> will get is the first noble truth as well as the poor or the fortunate or unfortunate. Well, this, this is a kind of empowerment, isn't it? It's not, we, we, because we're poor we can't uh, get anywhere. We can't awaken to the real. We're just the victim of, our, uh, of the position we were born into, poor family, unloved, unwanted, etc. And make that our way of relating to life. But awareness is our ability to perceive that as a condition. It's not judging it as wrong or bad, but it's noting that how we perceive ourselves is a creation that we are habituated to, to experience life through our own uh, self-views and biases or prejudices or attitudes. With mindfulness, we're, then we, we have, we're seen through those delusions, we're beginning to recognize this uh, pure consciousness, the reality uh, that's unitive rather than divisive or separative or, com- uh, or comparing one thing as being better than another. So the consciousness of a, of a poor person and a, and a wealthy person, it's the same thing. <laughs> the suffering each one is experiences different. But, so it's not about, you know, the, saying certain type of suffering, but it's just suffering. Or this this basic delusion of separateness, of fear that, that uh, we have, of the fear of the future, worry, anxiety about the future, self-disparagement, seeing ourselves from, from our critical minds, comparing ourselves with others, envying others, or 
uh, or hating others or resentments that we carry from uh, traumas or unfair experiences that we remember from the past, we begin to see these in terms of what they are in the present. They arise and cease. And this awareness then, this mindfulness, gives this perspective on your own emotional habits, uh, self-views, fears, desires, whatever, you know, whatever quality they might have in the present, they, they are conditioned phenomena that arise and cease. So, this, you know, when you really begin to appreciate this is simplifying everything, a way of reflecting, that we begin to have perspective uh, on the conditioned realm that isn't judgmental, but merely recognizing the common characteristic of impermanence. And that will take us to more awareness of that the condition, the condition realm, its very nature, is unsatisfying, you know, because we can't petrify it or, or hold to it and keep it a certain way. You know, and so we, we have to deal with this continuous change and threat of loss, uh, you know, of we, we, we might be successful now, but who knows next year what will happen. Or we have lots of money in the bank now, but next year uh, we don't know if we will have any left. So there's all possibilities of, of anxiety, worry about the future, uh, resentment or uh, from the past by remembering past experiences. So then um, awareness always brings us into the now, the reality of here and now. And, and then the, in this sense of not, like one can be mindful of an object, like, like being mindful of this, this glass, and I'm being mindful now. <laughs> but I have, you see, to really drink, I have to forget about you for a moment. <laughs> and then I look at you, and I can include you. So there's mindfulness of an object, you know, and uh, people say, well, then if you're mindful, you know, what about uh, bank robbers? Well, they're obviously very mindful, too. <laughs> you're going to rob a bank, you have to be, you know, there's a lot of danger. You just, you know, have to be attuned to every sound, everything, the possibility of somebody finding you. But they don't have the, this mindfulness in this way, this, this wide open sense. Of, uh, of looking, you know, of seeing that the desire to rob the bank as a condition that arises and sees, or a sense of wanting something you don't have, like you want the money that's in the bank and it's not yours yet. <laughs> and with mindfulness, we begin to to see these intentions, you know, these feelings of wanting something we don't have, or we have things we don't want, wanting to get rid of them. And where, you know, so that the, the uh, Buddha's teaching is about recognizing these desires and by blindly attaching to these desires, clinging to desires, we become that way. We become what we attach to. Uh, our, the, the, the identities we, we have, we become like that. If, you know, if, we, if anger arises, then we grasp anger and we become an angry person. Or, if we're really developed mindfulness, <coughs> anger might arise, but we're aware of it, we don't grasp it. So then, then that anger, we don't become angry, but there's still anger there. You see, the perspective is, is seeing it in terms of a, a condition that arises and ceases, rather than seeing it as my anger, I shouldn't be angry, or I'm angry because you said something rude to me and, and blaming it, or then we then we become somebody, a person again that that uh, you know becomes this anger, and we act and speak accordingly, or we suppress it. We, I shouldn't be angry, and we try to deny it and reject it. But with, with its mindfulness and consciousness, that's the, what we have, the, the gate to this, to this ultimate reality of consciousness, in which then we, we begin to 
trust that as our refuge rather than our own particular personal uh, scenarios, uh, views, opinions of life and that, that can vary and change uh, so easily. So seeing through delusion is through this practice, this development of mindfulness. And, and that's in my experience of having lived as a Buddhist monk, this is my 44th year, you know, had plenty of opportunity, 44 years, of, um, you know, unrelenting uh, opportunities. Because <laughs> this is why the purpose of being a summoner is to do this. You know, it's not to be another identity, you know, another ego kind of, uh, you know, to identify as being a Buddhist monk and, and then and grasp that perception. But if used properly, you know, then it's, it's merely a, an expedient means to reflect on, on how you see yourself on, and to, you know, the way we... The, the discipline we all agree to living under is is there uh, so that it simplifies and we, and it makes a fairly safe place to be because we there's a high level of trust uh, you know in terms of our commitment to this tradition this the, this discipline in which the aim of it is to break through seeing through the delusions that we inevitably have as, as human beings and as monks and nuns in, in Amaravati. So uh, the tea now is manifested, <laughs> another condition. <laughs> and uh, so I invite you all to have a cup of tea and then uh, in 20 minutes or so, if you're interested, we can uh, discuss this subject, seeing through delusion.